Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Game Grid Lehigh. Game Grid Lehigh is an amazing place to buy and sell Magic the Gathering singles. Whether you're building a new cube or crafting your new constructed deck, Game Grid Lehigh is the place to do it. Got a draft coming up with some friends? Buy some seal product here and get it quick. So click the referral link in the description to help out the show. And don't forget to use the code DRAFTPRO10 to get 10% off on your next order at gglehigh.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we're going to be covering something a little bit unusual, uh, not exactly going over a single archetype, not even going over a single format really. Last week I attended CubeCon in Madison, Wisconsin. It was an event that featured like 25 different cubes. I was really, really impressed by the event. It exceeded my expectations by quite a bit. It was really, really well organized and structured to allow everyone a really wide variety of cubes basically all the time with really good security and structure and everything. And so I got a good experience playing against a wide variety of players and a wide variety of cubes and had some takeaways from playing all those different cubes and approaching uh, new unexplored cubes and formats to me that I thought I would try to generalize from and pull some lessons out of to give to everyone else. So without getting too far into that, let me pause to remind everyone the notes are available for this. If you want to follow along, patreon.com slash drafting archetypes uh, for patrons. Anyway, getting back into the mindset for talking about cubes. A lot of players' experience with cubes is primarily with high-powered cubes, even when people talk about... so. Kind of the original cubes and a lot of people's first experience with cubes, I think the first cubes that were online at all were like vintage cubes that were basically intended to just be essentially the most powerful cards in Magic. And then Legacy Cube is basically like that without power. And then some of the like first Arena Cubes are just like the best Arena cards on Arena. And then even when you talk about like modern cubes, there's an implication that it's the strongest modern cards. Popper cubes, pioneer cubes, peasant cubes, all of those kind of secretly imply the best cards available in those restrictions. It's like building a constructed deck in a format, you specify the format, and then you just kind of trust that the cube owner is going to take the most powerful cards that they can, kind of like pretend they're going to battle decks drafted from their cube against decks drafted from another cube with the same restrictions. Not all cubes are like that, but a, a lot of the cubes that I had played before KubeCon were essentially constructed with that mentality. KubeCon featured more unique cubes that were more likely to be trying to do a thing. I mean, there are a lot of players, especially people who are deeper into cube, the cube community, cube culture, cube brewing, that are more aware of some of the more unique cubes. Like, for example, one of the cubes at KubeCon that I really enjoyed was called a Desert Cube. And this uh, was a cube where you couldn't add basic lands after the draft. You drafted three packs of 18 cards, and then you built a 40-card deck out of only cards that you drafted. So you had to draft your lands. And the lands in the cube were pretty weak. Basic lands were relatively good compared to a lot of lands that were available. and when I have told other people about having drafted this, I've heard a lot of responses that were like, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to draft a desert cube. And so there's this like understanding among cube people uh, of what a desert cube is, not just like a specific list. This is the desert cube or whatever, but just like that's understood as like this kind of cube where you can't add lands and stuff. There are a lot of these cubes that are kind of like trying to do a thing, building a specific format or experience, cubes based more on like some kind of certain synergy. Something that I've encountered before but was also present there is cubes that just fully exclude some colors. I also played a cube that had nothing with a converted mana cost above two. That cube was pretty fun, uh, pretty different. In that cube, for example, anything that 
Uh, mana sinks. Any any card that you spend mana outside of casting spells was more powerful than it would be in another format because you just run out of spells in your hand if you don't have that kind of thing. So in that cube, uh, I went 3-0 after first picking Ranger's Class, which was a really strong card because it lets you spend a whole bunch of extra mana in the game and gives you a payout that's like pretty Im- impactful relative to one and two mana cards. Even choosing, you know, the strongest one and two mana cards in general, which I think that cube was doing. As far as like how to approach figuring out what to take in a new cube, I think especially with kind of these like more synergy forward cubes, players overestimate the extent to which it's important to like ask the designer uh, what archetypes are supported or like, you know, what, what decks are in this cube. I think that <laughs> in some ways the designer is the last person you should ask. They are more likely to tell you what archetypes they tried to support, which is like how many cards they put in for an archetype or like what niche stuff they were trying to do. And I think in general, they're going to under-index for raw power level of the cards in the archetype and more importantly, just what the strongest cards in the cube are doing. I think a lot of cube designers kind of fail at some of their goals in terms of promoting certain archetypes. I think it's kind of analogous to, like I think a Rosewater quote about how like if your theme doesn't exist at common, it's not like a real theme in limited. That's, I don't know if that's a direct quote and it's not entirely true, but you know, there are like build around uncommons that create a niche archetype or something. But for the most part, like if you're like, what stuff should I be looking for in any given draft? If it's not a common, it's probably not something that you should be distracted with until you get a card that tells you to do it. In cube, the general texture of the cube and what the decks should be doing is dictated by the best cards, like the top 10% power level of the cube. And a lot of cubes are somewhat correctly, they include these kind of like cube staples, uh, just like really, really strong cards that people are used to seeing in cubes in general. And those cube staples are way better, like more powerful than like any niche cards that can go in the cube. They're staples for a reason. So if, for example, you have a cube that's supporting a plus one, plus one counter archetype, you might include the Great Henge because the Great Henge is very good if you're looking for plus one, plus one counters. But you don't need to draft a plus one, plus one counter deck to make the Great Henge good. And the number of plus one, plus one counter synergies that you have is not going to meaningfully impact your win rate when you resolve the Great Henge. If you resolve the Great Henge and you're playing a creature deck and the game is close and you're playing a limited format, you're going to win. Another example is I talked to someone who was building like a kind of low-powered synergy cube. Uh, Their cube included Fable of the Mirror Breaker. You know, you can justify including Fable of the Mirror Breaker in a really wide variety of cubes because... It's good if you have discard synergies. It's good if you have treasure synergies. It's good if you have sacrifice synergies. It's good if you have ETB synergies. It specifically works with all kinds of different things. And so it's really easy to say like, oh yeah, Fable the Mirror Breaker has like special interactions in my cube that make it particularly good and interesting. But in reality, the experience of losing to Fable the Mirror Breaker is roughly identical no matter what other cards are in a deck with Fable of the Mirror Breaker. And most people who have been playing in the last year or two have experienced losing to Fable of the Mirror Breaker. And so if your goal is to generate novel experiences uh, by having a cube with like a different environment, the experience of Fable of the Mirror of losing to Fable of the Mirror Breaker is not going to generate that novel experience. And so Fable of the Mirror Breaker is going to overshadow the rest of what's going on in your cube. And there are just a lot of the strongest cards work with a bunch of things in a way that makes them easy to justify, but they work like the Great Henge or Fable the Mirror Breaker, or like, you know, if you include Oko in your cube because you care about like 
artifacts or tokens or food specifically or something. None of those, those synergies matter. If you play Oko, Oko does Oko. And so you want to be really, really careful if you're going to include any of that stuff because if you see a card like that in a pack that's a bunch of like lower power level uh, niche synergy stuff, you just take that card. And once you have that card, now rather than drafting a deck that's about whatever synergy is going on, you draft a deck that's about maximizing that card, where a lot of the time maximizing that card literally just means finding and casting it. It's like uh, a bomb in limited where, you know, if you have like a broken rare, then you can draft a control deck that's just about like living to play that rare. Kind of the first pass in any cube shouldn't be what archetypes did the designer try to support. It should just be what are the 20 best cards in this cube? And those are going to tell you a lot more about how you should be expecting the games to play and what matters than what like synergies or archetypes people tried to put in the cube. Um, a lot of the weird decks that people put in their cube, basically there are a lot of people who are, have not like, you know, have like a legacy cube and they're like, okay, this is a legacy cube, but it's different from other legacy cubes because I wanted to support this deck and this deck and this deck. But it's still designed to meet people's expectations of what a legacy cube is. And so it still has all the best cards. And what they've done is they've removed the bottom 30% of the cards, like 30% of the cards power level wise, to replace it with a different bottom 30%. But the bottom 30% of cards have a trivial impact on the way the cube plays, no matter what they are. And that's hard to avoid. There are a lot of cubes that do something with that bottom 30% that's like, oh, and goblins is a supported deck. And instead of like the other last picks, the last picks are all goblins. And if someone wants, they can prioritize taking some good goblins and then get a bunch of late goblins and they can play a goblin deck. And that's fine you know if you're expecting that some portion of your players particularly like playing goblins or something you can do that um but i don't think that the goblin deck is very often going to be the best deck that's not to say goblins can never be the best deck in a cube it's to say if you have all of the you know cube staples then your like whatever random niche deck you have in your cube is probably not going to be able to compete with the staples because the staples are the staples for a reason. They're just the best cards. Um, they're cards that have like dominated constructed formats wherever they're legal. They're stronger than the other things. If they weren't stronger than the other things, those other things would be the staples instead of them. So level one, whenever you encounter any new cube, is just like if you're looking at a list, just look at what the best cards are. If you're looking at a pack and you haven't been told anything about the cube, you just go in blind, you open a pack, Instead of like, okay, what synergies do I think exist in this cube somewhere based on the cards that I'm seeing here? Like, oh, there are like three cards with cycling. I bet there's a cycling deck. Like, you just want to go like, okay, what's the strongest card here? And then like take a draft around that. So some examples about like my starts from CubeCon, because some it's not always just like, oh, here's a staple, I'll take it. A lot of times, like, there isn't a staple or uh, the context does matter. So, for example, I mentioned the uh, CMC less than three cube that I played where I first picked Rangers class because it was a mana sink. That's a really strong card. Uh, like, in general, cards from the last four years tend to overperform in cubes compared to cards that are older than that. Like, Power Creep is real. The cards recently have a lot of words on them. The words add up to doing things. Ranger class is a really strong card. But there are plenty of formats. Uh, like, Ranger class is not a great first pick in all cubes. In many cubes, it's not a great first pick. It's very easy to go over the top of Ranger class with uh, most cube staples. But... With a mana cost one and two cube, it's much harder to go over the top of Ranger class. And the mana sink aspect, as I mentioned, was particularly potent. So 
in that format, understanding the constraints of the format and what that implied about the way the games would play, it was clear that Ranger class would overperform. Another cube I was playing, I think what was called a Rainbow Synergy Cube. I still don't really know what synergies were supported, but I got the impression that it was going to have a lot of multicolor stuff. And so my first pack contained Relic of Legends, the Dominary United card. The taps for mana of any color. You can also tap Legends to add mana. And it also had a lot of uh, Legends from Commander products. And Legends from Commander products tend to be pretty strong. And so I figured if this cube has a bunch of these like Legends from Commander products, I'm probably going to be reasonably happy to put a good number of Legends in my deck. And if this cube has multicolor in the name, I'm probably going to be expected to play a multicolor deck. And so having a mana artifact that is particularly synergistic with the cube and also just like lets me do the thing well, like is a good piece of fixing, seemed better than like kind of an interchangeable high-powered threat. So I first picked Relic of Legends and ended up in like a Jund plus all-value deck with a bunch of uh, really good legends. I don't remember exactly what they were, but like Prosper comes to mind and three it with that and Relic of Legends was great. I was very happy starting with that. In the desert cube that I mentioned, uh, it was clear that there was a lot of cycling and that the cube overall was pretty low power level. That cube did a good job of having very few, like really, like it didn't really have like cube staples in it. And so I first picked Gavi Nest Tender, which like, I think makes creatures when you draw your second card per turn and your first cycling effect is free every turn. And, you know, it's not a card that I would expect to even put in my deck in most cubes, but it was clear in context that it was going to be very strong. And it it was pretty strong. I don't think it was a great first pick or anything, but I also appreciated getting some direction in the low-powered cube there. So this is to say, you know, you do want to be aware of what's going on, but you also want to just like take something strong rather than like taking something really narrow, I guess. Like don't just hop into whatever. Although arguably I did that with the Gavi pick, but it seemed hard to avoid cycling in the desert cube. So to give a, just a more precise example of this idea that like there are cards that like wildly change power level depending on the support. Uh, I think like one of the purest examples would be like Time Vault. Time Vault is, if you don't know what Time Vault is, um, it's like a commonly played card in vintage cubes that doesn't really exist outside of that. It's two-man artifact that enters the battlefield tapped. You have to skip your turn to untap it and you can tap it to take an extra turn. But you can also just like use effects that untap it and then tap it for an extra turn. So if you have a way to untap it multiple times, then you get to take multiple extra turns. So if you have anything that can untap something every turn, you get to take infinite turns with it. There are not that many cards that naturally untap an artifact that like just go in every cube. If Time Vault is in a cube with no cards that untap it, it is not a very strong card. It's a card that should rarely go in any deck. But every card that can untap it creates just like a two card win the game combo and so the power level of time vault very very quickly goes from a zero to a ten as you go from say zero to ten cards that go infinite with it in your cube so a card that is like a narrow combo piece like time vault or splinter twin is going to vary in power level wildly depending on uh, how many cards there are that go infinite with it, and also how many other cards work well with those cards or how many tutors there are or whatever. Like, you know, how reasonable it is to include this like combo in your deck while still also having a strong deck, and then how easy is it to find that combo. So if a card has a really, really, really high ceiling and a really, really, really low floor, like Time Vault exactly, then... You might need to know the details of the cube to know how good it is. But for most cube staples, um, they're just going to be good no matter what. So the other big point that I wanted to be sure to talk about is mana. So my approach is, in general, find the standout card, take that card. If there isn't a standout card, then 
take fixing. <laughs> because in general, I expect that there will be some standout cards. And the better my mana is, the more I can play those standout cards that I see later. So I want to talk about something that is applicable in any draft format, but comes up all the time in cubes, which is navigating your mana base. I have had trouble figuring out how to explain. Like I, I talked about this idea of like pressure and release in terms of uh, cards that are difficult to cast because they have a lot of pips or they're out of your color, adding pressure to your mana base and fixing releasing pressure, relieving pressure. But I think it might be better to talk about it more numerically. So if you have no fixing and you're planning to play 17 lands and basic lands are available, then by default, your deck has 17 colored sources. You have the 17 lands, each of them gives you one color, and so you have 17 colored mana sources to work with. That means if you're a two-color deck, you'll have roughly nine of one color and roughly eight of another color. As you add colors to your deck in cube, I think that you generally want to average eight sources per color in your deck. This is not settled science. This is not universally true. But just let's assume... Early in a draft, you don't know what cards you're going to play, but you started with like a Nicol Bolas. Doesn't matter which Nicol Bolas, they're all three colors. You have one of them. Uh, you now don't know your color balance. You just know that you're going to be playing at least three colors. So let's assume that given that you're playing three colors, you just decide that you're going to want an average of eight ways to get each of your colors of mana. So now... In a two-color deck, you could be pretty happy with 16 like total colored sources. But in a three-color deck, now you need 24, three times eight. You could get that by playing 24 lands. That would not be a good approach. Alternatively, you can get it with cards that fix your mana. Whenever you draft a dual land, that's plus one colored source. Because you get to replace a land that taps for one color with a land that taps for two color. So if you've drafted one dual land... Now you're at 18 colored sources instead of 17. If you draft Coalition Relic, an artifact that taps for mana of any color, that's plus five sources if you're a five-color deck. But if we are only a three-color deck, it's only plus three sources because it can't meaningfully fix for colors that you don't have. So a Coalition Relic is plus three sources. So now you've if you just take a Coalition Relic, you don't have a dual land, you just have a Coalition Relic, you've gone from 17 to 20 colored sources because you're play you are not cutting a land for your coalition relic you're just adding it it's plus one to each of your colors while you're a three color deck you're at 20 sources if you decide that you're a four color deck you're now at 21 sources but you're also now targeting 34 32 instead of 24 as you're drafting you can just count uh you know the requirement if you just estimate it at eight per color and you can count how many you're at currently and then you just need to uh, kind of do the math on the number of additional sources you've taken as a function of how far into the draft you are. And then if you continue taking them at the same rate that you have been taking them, will you reach your expected number that you're looking for or not by the end of the draft? And then as picks go on, if you fall behind that, you need to increase your prioritization of fixing. And as you get more, you decrease your prioritization to fixing. Now, when I count colored sources, what I'm counting is how many cards in my deck can give me mana of this color if I draw them. So for these purposes, um, City of Brass counts the same as Birds of Paradise, except Birds of Paradise requires green. So I don't think about it as giving me green mana. So a Coalition Relic is like plus all of the colors. A Bird of Paradise is plus all of the colors except green. So if I'm playing a five-color deck, Coalition Relic is plus five sources. Birds of Paradise is plus four sources. A Triome is plus two sources because it's replacing a land. A Fetch Land is complicated. If it's Evolving Wilds, it's plus five sources, except that you might want to do something to adjust for the fact that you choose a single source and it's locked into that particularly if you're playing like a five color deck. 
So like an evolving wilds in a three color deck safely counts as three sources. It's going to like fill your missing color reliably. But if you're playing a five color deck, it's very hard to make all of your mana work with just evolving wilds. So I think that it might be good if you're like really going into the numbers here to count uh, a card like Evolving Wilds or Fabled Passage as having a maximum of contributing three or four sources, whereas like City of Brass would contribute a full five. There's something here about like, you know, soft fixing versus hard fixing, how much you take into account the fact that a Bird of Paradise is a lot more likely to die than a Triome. But all of this is just kind of a wobbly ballpark thing anyway, but I think it's a lot more useful than not having anything to work with. So for the most part, this it doesn't matter really how good the fixing is, just whether it is a card that gives you access to a color that you didn't otherwise have. When you get into the details, you can you know pay attention specifically to what your fixing is. For example, cards like Coalition Relic and Chromatic Lantern and Relic of Legends that give you access to multiple mana of any color, let you just kind of play things that are double in any color without really thinking about it. If you have a lot of that stuff, it's just like, oh, this card just fixes all of my mana forever. It's a very, very, very different thing than like if you have Kalein, a card that requires two mana and gives you a single treasure that gives you a mana of another color once if your mana is already in reasonable shape. Whether you should count treasure at all is um, kind of a separate question. For the most part, no, especially if you're talking about a deck with like balanced color requirements. But if you're looking at like, well, I'm a two color deck that's splashing a card, then of course, treasure sources count for your ability to like, well, will I be able to cast that card once? So anyway, I don't actually keep this number in my head when I'm drafting. I mean, I, I just do it intuitively at this point. I have a pretty good sense of like roughly where I'm at in terms of being able to cast my cards. But if you are, struggle at all with knowing how to uh, support your colors, when to prioritize uh, taking fixing, I think that this idea of just like, there's just a single number in your head that is the total number of sources in your deck based on the cards that you've drafted. And just pay attention to the rate that that number is going up and whether it's going to reach your target by the end of the draft and then adjust your target as a function of how many colors you're playing. And, you know, I said you want to average eight sources of each of your colors. You could also say, well, this is just going to be a splash. So I only want four sources of that. So, you know, instead of saying, oh, I'm three colors, so I need 24, you can say, oh, I'm two and a half colors, so I need 20. And you know, again, not all sources are equal. This is just ballpark, but I think it's a pretty good way to think about it. Yeah. And again, th that works for any format. It's just that in cubes, I at least personally find myself drafting multicolored decks a lot because cubes often have really good fixing and uh, powerful cards all over the place. And I like to be able to take advantage of them. Oh, I mentioned that like regular fetch lands are tricky because like by default, like Flooded Strand is plus one source. It's like a dual land. It gives you access to two different colors, but every fetchable duel that you have adds like more colors to what it can give you. So you need to like count the fetch lands as number of sources equal to the number of things that it can find and then like adjust that as you get more tools that it can find but like early in the draft you want to be thinking of it as kind of implicitly worth the number it's going to end up being worth but then you need to prioritize the things that make that true so they're tricky <laughs> i think that's most of what i wanted to cover we got mana we got staples and like I guess I want to just circle back to highlighting kind of the takeaways for cube designers, which is staples are staples for a reason. A lot of the like players like to play with cards. A lot of the reason that people play cubes is to have a chance to play with cards that they have a nostalgia for or an emotional connection with that they don't get to play very often. Because so usually players have an emotional connection to cards that they've played before. Um, if you haven't played a card a lot, you haven't really had a chance to build an emotional connection to it for the most part. So 
what happens is there are cards that like had a place in competitive constructed magic at some point in the past and players played with them and they built a connection to them. And then they rotated out, more cards got printed, more formats got like new formats where those cards weren't included, got popular, whatever. Now players don't have the ability to play with that card, but they still have a connection to it. And so cube is a good chance to like get to play with that card. And so it's good to include these nostalgic staples because they're fun for people to have a chance to revisit and play with again. And cube is like the way to do that. And so like that specific experience of getting to play with these cards that players love is a lot of the draw of cube. That's like what cube is offering. And so it's good to include those staples to provide that experience. Basically, I think one of the most important things to ask yourself when you're building a cube is, are you trying to provide that experience or are you trying to provide a novel experience? Because the thing about playing with these nostalgic cards is kind of the whole point is that people have played with them before and understand how they work. And it's about recapturing something. So it's about something old rather than something new specifically. And so you need to decide what you're doing. Are are you given, making a cube that's about the novel experience or about the familiar experience? And you can try to put them together, but it's very, very hard because the cards that create this familiar experience, again, are beloved in this way because they're strong. And so it's really hard for the novel cards to compete with them unless... Your, the way that you're getting novelty is by using a bunch of busted commander products that like your players haven't played with before. That's kind of the cheat, I guess, is if you combine like old cards that people love with really, really strong commander products, then you can uh, mix this like nostalgia with novelty. But it's still like your games are often going to be about the power level of the strongest cards. You're just going to have a mix of strong cards from the past and strong cards from commander products. If you're looking to build a novel experience with familiar cards, uh, like, you know, lower power level synergy type stuff, then you need to not include those strongest cards that would warp the format around them. So not include those like nostalgic constructed staples and not include uh, busted supplementary product cards. And then you're going to lose out on a lot of that like nostalgia appeal, but you'll have the opportunity to create like a novel gameplay experience. That's just a matter of understanding what you're looking for, what you expect your players are looking for. At KubeCon, I played one cube that was called the Old Border Foil Cube um, that was basically just here are a bunch of really, really pretty cards that we expect that players have played with and love, and they're just going to like holding these cards in their hand and playing games with them. And this is very much about that cozy nostalgia feeling And gameplay is arguably secondary to just the experience of playing with these cards that players will enjoy holding and looking at and playing with. Whereas something like the Desert Cube is a lot of, you know, kind of weird cards that people don't have a lot of nostalgia for and throwing them into a particularly taxing and difficult draft environment where you know you have to like really carefully manage all of your picks because you're drafting your exact mana sources and that's about creating uh kind of this like more like stressful precise novel gameplay experience i could tie this into a thing that i uh discussed on twitter about like heavy gamers and light gamers and whether you're looking for a game to be kind of like casual and fun and relaxing to kind of like turn off your brain and chill versus whether you're looking for a game to be like engaging and challenging and give you a difficult puzzle and something to think about to like really tax your brain. Uh, there, are, there are players who are looking for either of those and cubes can kind of accommodate those. You know, in general, a cube is going to be on the heavier end. Magic in general is on the heavier end. But I think that, you know, this like nostalgia adds this like cozy feel and this familiarity that gives you a lot of like mental shortcuts 
because you've already like processed and worked through all this stuff. So I would say these like more nostalgia heavy uh, cubes are more of a light gaming experience, whereas the novel cubes that are trying to like create something different are generally more of like a heavy experience. It's going to be more mentally taxing to figure out how to engage with the cube and what's strong in that cube in particular and stuff like that. So another thing where just like understanding the experience that you and your players are looking for can maybe help inform what kind of cube you are looking to build. A little bit of a different situation here than I'm used to in terms of like not having a default blueprint for what I need to cover to have completed this topic. You know, it's not like these are the cards you're looking for. Uh, here's how to win with this archetype. Hopefully this has covered some questions you might have had about cubes or whatever, giving you some useful stuff to work with. Let's turn it over to chat for big picture. Any questions you have about cubes, stuff I've talked about, stuff I haven't, whatever. This is this is the general cube episode. So just hit me with whatever. While I'm waiting for some questions in chat, again, of course, any outstanding questions you've had from the episode earlier or anything new. And then uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you very much to my newest patron at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, Jason. And if anyone else is interested in supporting the podcast or uh, getting, you know, access to the more like in-depth notes and stuff as we move into Brothers War next week, be sure to check out the offerings at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. What about a card that's very, very fun and interactive, but is an unset card? Do you have thoughts on this? So like Booster Tutor. I, I don't think that it especially matters where a card came from in cubes. If you and your players believe that a card is very, very fun and interactive, and that's something that you're looking for, then include it. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not exactly sure what the question here is really getting at. I, I think Booster Tutor in particular is a really strong card, especially if the way that you play it is you open a cube booster. I have seen a cube that included Booster Tutor in like a powered cube, but where you literally opened just like a regular pack and you know you can play it either way uh it's fine the un uncards are you know as long as your players are down for the experience that they're offering it's fine to use them the same way as you know commander products or dexterity cards or whatever else question regarding cube designers you mentioned the top 30 cards in a cube dictate how the cube will play like oko how do you view cards like Counterspell or Lightning Bolt, which should be in the top 30, but don't win games on their own? So I don't think Counterspell or Lightning Bolts are... I'm not sure if those are like... I don't think they're in the top 30 in like Vintage Cube, for example. I do think that just like how efficient is the removal or interaction is like a relevant question to processing uh, how a cube will play. So, I mean, I do think that those factor in regardless of whether like they win the game on their own. I think that they have a bit less heavy of a footprint than something like Oko. But, um, you know, if your cube is about a bunch of like niche linear stuff where you need to like assemble multiple cards together and then you just also have really strong removal to break up those synergies, like that really, those like really strong disruptive pieces will still kind of like step on what the weaker cards are doing. If I'm getting started with designing cubes, is there a canon of well-made cubes I could look at for inspiration? I would guess that the best kind of default canon is probably just all of the cubes that have been on Magic Online. Those are the cubes that the most people are going to be familiar with, and those are cubes that have been you know, curated by people who have like a lot of power and incentive to like choose cubes that are going to be widely popular. So it's hard to think of like what a more trustworthy canon would be than just like what cubes have been featured on Magic Online. Is there a cube up now we can get a draft with? I don't believe that there is currently on Arena. I think there will be soon. Did I play with the Artisan cube on Magic Online last year? 
it was a peasant cube, I don't think that I did. How can you make black not suck in an unpowered cube? Like, reanimator is fine, but parasitic, black aggro is garbage, that's true. Do you just resign yourself to being tutors and discard and removal? So I assume that we're talking about like legacy cube. So like high powered, but not actual pieces of power, but just generally like the best cards that are available in legacy. So obviously like the general like disruption and tutor, like thought sees type stuff is good. And you have like him to Turok, like the discard stuff is strong, but you want to like have like an archetype. Let's see. I've been not in the mindset of designing legacy cubes lately. I mean, obviously there's stuff like, you know, toxic deluge. Uh, that's just like a pretty good rate. And I guess I look to black to be kind of like mid range value. So like Gonti is something that I like think of as a cube staple, but might be a little bit underpowered for legacy, but probably not. But like, uh, as with everything, I think if you're kind of struggling from cards that you normally think of to find stuff that's good, Commander product offers a lot. Like Lethal Scheme, for example, is a card that I think is really, really powerful that like a lot of people might not be aware of. That's two black, black, Convoke, destroy target creature. Each creature that like convoked to cast this connives. Yeah, I, I would just look for Commander, like check like... EDH rack for black cards to find like commander product cards that are stronger than like the cards you're trying to replace would be like and just kind of go for like mid-range disruptive is my best get my best guess about increasing the power level of black and high-powered formats. In your spot about mana sources, do card lands count as two or three sources? Since it draws you a land, they count as two sources because they give you access to two colors that you wouldn't otherwise have. Um, the land that it's returning isn't a new color. It's a color you already had. And we don't care about, like, we're not counting card advantage or anything here. We're just counting about, like, your access to colors. Speaking of complexity versus relaxing, the Unfinity Draft format is really quite complex, which is an interesting choice for a set aimed at casual players. Yes. <laughs> First of all, uh, like there was a cube at KubeCon that um, was heavily unset based that I didn't play because my expectation is that unsets have a lot of words and complex mechanics that I'm not very familiar with and didn't really want to bother learning. Like it just felt like a heavier experience, like more draining than I was looking for. That's just kind of the deal with unsets they're like mentally taxing and then presented as casual with the hope that players just don't care enough about winning to feel very drained by it i think i don't have a lot to say about like what to do about that it's just kind of what's going on with the unproduct given there are so many powerful cards in the cube uh how does early pick strategy change how do you identify standout cards from such a powerful field even among the best cards, there are standouts. Uh, a lot of them, like, just think of the cards that have, like, absolutely warped their constructed formats and or cards that have ever been banned. That's a pretty good starting point for, like, what the strongest cards are among strong cards. It takes, I don't know, a lot of practice or expertise or something to, like, reliably know what things are the absolute best. There, there are exceptional cards in any pool, basically. What are your thoughts on including multiplayer-based mechanics into single-player cubes? Cards like Palace Jailer and more recently White Plume Adventure are very powerful, but I've found that people often don't enjoy the upkeep those cards add to the game. So both the Monarch and Initiative are cards that are that are designed to like make combat matter and get players attacking in multiplayer games. They serve a similar role to Planeswalkers in one-on-one -on -one games where they just like make attacking kind of the thing that matters. Palace Jailer in particular is a really, really messed up card in two-player. So like just be cognizant of its power level and uh, think about whether it's encouraging something that you want to encourage. Like th those cards do have a heavy impact on play patterns. And so you need to just like factor that in when deciding if you should include cards like that in your cube. Do, do you want a card that's like that 
heavy, not in terms of like heavy versus light gaming or whatever, but heavy in terms of like weighs strongly on the way a game plays out. Do you think cubes should have some outliers in power level to mimic rares? Uh, or should you try to keep the power level closer to a small standard deviation across all cards in the cube? So it's a good question in that I think that rares do something useful in a draft format by encouraging people to play different colors than they normally would and stuff like that. At the same time, I think that that's important because the average player in like the players that the draft formats are most designed for are probably, well, it's a mix, but (laughs) the thing that rares are doing where they get players to draft decks that they wouldn't otherwise draft is more useful to players who are drafting the set more than 10 times. An important question to ask when you're making a cube is how many times are you and your players going to be drafting this cube and or how frequently? If you're going to be playing it with the same people all the time and those people are likely to like find themselves in ruts where they always draft the same thing and they wouldn't prefer that that happens and like would have more fun if they were pushed to do other things sometimes than including power level outliers that will get people to draft something that isn't the same thing they always draft can be useful for that reason. But in general, I think that the average cards in cube are strong enough that you don't need to include cards that are like game breaking to create like varied gameplay and stuff like that, which is a thing that like rares do that I think is largely unnecessary to cubes. So it really depends on the needs of like you and your players, as well as just kind of like what's going on with your cube. In general, I think avoiding power level differential in cubes is so hard that you probably don't need to go out of your way to do it. Do you think all colors should have equal fixing or do you think it's okay if say black is overperforming to change a shock to a tap land um, or in that case to remove a black payoff? I think that you can really do whatever you want with your cube. You know, there are cubes that just fully drop a color if, you know, you're like, oh, everyone's drafting blue. So I've seen, you know, some vintage cubes account for everyone's drafting blue by saying, all right, whatever, we'll just put more blue cards in and let everyone draft blue. You could also go like, all right, let's just cut half the blue cards and people can draft blue, but like it's not going to be able to be their primary color and they'll, they'll all fight over splashing it or whatever. As far as like making the mana very slightly worse, I think it's like... It's an interesting question because it's not going to change how people draft it very much. And then we'll just like sneakily change their win rate a little bit. I worry about it being too sneaky in terms of like violating player expectations. I think that the problem with like, oh, the fixing for this color is just worse than the fixing for other colors, but like the cards don't look different. There's a high cost just in terms of making sure that your players know and understand that going into every draft because it's not going to be apparent like in their packs. I think that it's going to be a solution that will feel bad to new players in your cube drafting against experienced players with your cube because it's such a unusual way to go about fixing that problem that it might feel like they have less of an idea how much they're supposed to account for that than players who are more familiar with it. So I guess in general the danger to like novel clever solutions is that they risk basically tricking your players if you don't provide the information properly or if they don't feel like they know how to account for it. Do I think black aggro is a viable strategy in legacy plus power level cubes? Roughly no. I don't think black aggro has been like a playable strategy in 90% of the cubes that it's been in. I don't think like black aggro is very commonly a strong strategy like in constructed magic and certainly not like in legacy. I say having top eight at a Grand Prix a very long time ago with essentially a black aggro deck, but it was more of like a synergy aristocrats kind of thing than like actually attacking with two ones. Do you prefer a cube with a really loud theme or a cube that's more diffuse? I can't answer it. I can't answer that in general. I like cubes that succeed at doing whatever they're trying to do. I can appreciate cubes in a lot of different ways. And, you know, there's prefer in terms of like replay value versus prefer in terms of like uh, novelty. Like how much do you like this drafting it once is a very different question than how much do you like this drafting it three times a week. All right. I think 
questions are dying down here. So I'm going to call it there. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Tried to cover some uh, novel ground here and some stuff that's just kind of generally useful. Uh, hope at least some of that landed and moving forward next week, we're going to be getting into brothers war. I think that I don't know for sure if the full set is going to be out, but there will definitely be enough information available to take a look at broad strokes about what's going on in the format, uh, even down to like what the archetypes limited are and stuff. So should be able to do a pretty good uh, overview as we get started on kind of diving into Brothers War in advance of the paper pre-release, which will still be in advance of the online release. So my goal, given the release schedule and everything for Brothers War, is to have let everyone have a really good understanding of what's going on before it's available on Arena, especially since, to plug it once again, I will be going to the Magic Summit and uh, competing there. And I highly recommend anyone else also attend the summit, mtgsummit.com, for information about what's going on there. Uh, that's a pre-release with the Black Lotus Prize and a whole bunch of other stuff going on in Salt Lake City. And you can use the code SAMBLACK for 5% off your entry uh, into any events there. Uh, so mtgsummit.com, discount code SAMBLACK, one word, all lowercase, S-A-M-B-L-A-C-K. And uh, hope to see people there. I will be there. Speaking of cube, I will be there with my commander cube. I'll be looking for players for, you know, any all times outside of when I'm competing in matches. I'll be looking to get drafts with my commander cube going. So if you're there uh, and you see me and you're interested, just let me know. And I'm sure that we'll be able to, you know, arrange some drafts, let people uh, try my favorite cube at the moment. So... That's it for now. I'll be back next week with Brothers War. Lights.